Well, good morning, High Point. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, this morning. My name is Parker Richardson, and I have the privilege of serving here on staff in our student ministry. And I also have the privilege of uh, wrapping up our series in the book of Psalms. Yeah, this has been an incredible series. Hopefully you've been tuning in with us. If not, you can check out uh, the messages that we've already posted out of the book of Psalms. And uh, we're wrapping up today. We haven't covered all the Psalms, obviously, but we've been ever able to cover a handful and they've been phenomenal. And today we're gonna be in Psalm 73. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 73. And uh, I would read the whole Psalm to you to begin, but there's 28 verses and we're gonna cover every single one of them verse by verse. So uh, I'm just going to pray for us as you turn to Psalm 73, and then we'll jump in together. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I'm so grateful for this morning. Um, Father, thank you for the privilege um, to speak your word. And God, I pray um, that as I stand over it physically, that my heart and my life would be under it. Um, so God, I pray for us that we would respond um, in repentance and faith and obedience and uh, God, I'm praying that this message um, brings clarity to so many hearts and lives uh, of the people that watch it. But God, I can't do that. Um, only you can. So God, guard me from error. Keep me faithful to your word. And Father, I pray um, that you would speak to us, teach us during this time. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, Tom Shadiak is a movie producer and director, and he's had the privilege of directing movies uh, like The Nutty Professor, Ace Ventura, Bruce Almighty, Evan Almighty, um, some pretty incredible movies, some pretty famous movies. And uh, Tom Shadiak developed or accumulated a pretty mass fortune from directing these movies. And early on in his career, he was worth about $50 million and ended up living in California, buying a 17,000 square foot mansion in Pasadena, California, and uh, also two side houses. And I don't know what a side house is, but uh, he had two of those and uh, everything was going great. He had a full staff that worked his houses. He was living large in California and everything was awesome until in 2007, Tom Shadiak was in a nearly fatal uh, bike accident. And this bike accident gave him a nearly fatal concussion. And after his concussion, he had some pretty serious post-concussion symptoms. And uh, this caused Tom Shadiak to spiral into doubt, into depression, into suicidal thoughts. And once he eventually recovered from all those things, Tom Shadiak sold his mansion, sold his side houses, ended up buying a motor home and living in a trailer park and has since been pursuing the meaning of life. And he's been dedicating every single moment of his life to try to help people. He moved to Memphis. Um, his brother was a part of uh, St. Jude Hospital and uh, fundraising there. So he moved to Memphis. He started teaching a film class at the University of Memphis, go Tigers. And uh, he has since been trying to discover the meaning of life and leverage every single moment that he can to help people. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because here's the thing, a moment of perspective can change everything for you. And in a moment, in a flash, Tom Shadiak saw just how fragile life is, just how fragile the things of this world are, just how quick you can lose them. And it changed everything for him. And the Psalm that we're gonna read this morning has a very similar story. So we're gonna walk through it right now. Psalm 73, in the beginning of the Psalm, 
the heading, which is actually in scripture, the heading wasn't added later by the editors. Asaph wrote this heading and it's called, it's titled a Psalm of Asaph. Now Asaph, who was he? Asaph was a choir director. Um, he was working while David was king. He was a choir director over the nation of Israel. He was a big deal. He was in leadership. He wrote songs. He played instruments. He led worship. Um, he wrote 12 of the Psalms that we have in scripture. He wrote Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83. Um, so nonetheless, we don't know too much about the guy, but we know he was spiritual. And the fact that God and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write 12 chapters of scripture, which is a pretty big deal. So this is a Psalm of Asaph and this is what he writes. And here's the thing about Psalm 73 verse one. This is what it says. It says, truly God is good to... Israel to those who are pure in heart. And the thing about this verse is this is actually Asaph's conclusion. So if you've ever seen a movie where it starts at the end and then it shows you the end scene and then it rewinds and the story unfolds and gets you all the way to the end. It's kind of like, remember the Titans. Um, if you haven't seen remember the Titans, it's kind of on you at this point. Uh, it's kind of your fault, but remember the Titans begins at the end. It begins at the funeral of one of the players. I won't give you the name. And then it rewinds and you watch the story unfold to get back to this point. And this is the same thing that's happening in Psalm 73. So this is Asaph's conclusion. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he hasn't always felt that way. And we see that because he starts using past tense words in Psalm 73 too. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So this Psalm is the story of what has happened where his feet had almost stumbled. And he says this in verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And this is his statement. This is kind of the summary statement of what his problem was. He was envious of the arrogant and he saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's looking around and seeing the, the arrogant people, the wicked people, and life is going great for them. And he goes into a lot of detail about just how good their life is. So we'll pick up verse four. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are, flat, are fat and sleek. So they don't, uh, have any struggle. They don't have any pain until they die. Like their life is so easy. It just goes on great. They don't seem to struggle or toil or anything. And then they die and their death is probably easy too. It's probably quiet. It's probably in their sleep. They don't feel a thing. And then he says their bodies are fat and sleek. Now this was not an insult. This was actually a compliment. In those days, if you had a little bit of something on your body, if you had a little bit of fat and notice it's almost like they're buff. They're fat, but they're sleek. And he says, this is actually a compliment to them. It means they're strong, they're eating well, they're wealthy. Everything's going great. No pain until death, no struggle, no toil. And they look great. They feel good. Verse five, this is what he says. He says, uh, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of us. So they don't get in trouble. They don't toil. Nothing bad happens to them. They're not stricken. And these are the wicked people. These are the liars. These are the people that are stealing and deceiving and manipulating and everything's going their way. They're prospering. Verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And what he's saying here is that they don't even try to hide their pride or their violence. They wear them. They show them off. They make pride, if it's possible, they make pride look good. 
But he says they don't even try to hide it. They're not shy. They're not trying to to, uh, cover up their pride. No, they just wear it out in the open. It's a necklace. They're showing off their pride. Violence covers them like a garment. There's just this trail of violence wherever they go. Verse seven, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. So not only are they wearing pride and violence, but their eyes are so big and their eyes swelling out like fatness. It just means that their eye, the eye is the beginning of what you want, right? Their eyes are fat. They see what they want. They go get it. They see what they want. They go get it. Their eyes are just swelling and whatever they want, they just go get and their hearts overflowing with folly with deceit, with malice. Verse eight, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So they scoff and speak with malice. They threaten people. They threaten to oppress people, right? They they speak with malice. They slander, they curse people. And then when you try to stand up against them, if people try to stand up against them, they threaten to oppress you. They threaten and intimidate to get what they want. You can see how this would anger ASAP, they're doing all of these things and life's better for them. Life's going well for them. Verse nine, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And now ASAP starts to get a little personal. He says, God, they even curse you. They set their mouth against the heavens and they boast as they're going through the earth. They walk through this earth and they talk about how great their lives are, how awesome they are, how they've deceived people, how they've intimidated people. They just strut throughout the earth. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. So they intimidate, they oppress, they're arrogant to the point where no one even stands up to them. People turn their back on them. They don't find any fault in them at all. They've got this thing figured out. They have manipulated, they've intimidated, they've deceived enough to where everything's going their way and nobody's standing against them. And then he even quotes them. Verse 11, he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? And what he's saying here is he's literally saying, God, they even say, if there's a God in heaven, surely he's not knowledgeable. Because if there was truly a God in heaven and he knew what was going on right here, he would do something about it. So they say, is there even, how can God know? Is there even knowledge in the most high? Because if there was a God, if he was knowledgeable, he would see what we're doing down here on this earth and he would do something about it. He would intervene. There's no way a God would let this happen. So they curse him. And then verse 12, he says this, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. This is their life. It's always at ease. They've figured it out. They've manipulated the system. They've got everything going the way they want to. And it's working. They're benefiting. They don't have to work hard at all. And they just continue to increase in riches. And then this is one of the most key verses in this passage passage, verse 13, Psalm 73, 13. This is Asaph's confession. He says, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, if this is a waste, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean. I've, I've had pure thoughts. I've had pure motives. I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. I haven't hurt anybody. I haven't stolen from anybody. I'm innocent. I've done everything I can to have a pure heart and it's in vain. If you've ever thought about that word vain, the word vain means ineffective. 
It means useless. It means not getting the result that you want. So this is a pretty bold confession, but what Asaph is actually saying is, God, I want what they have. I deserve what they have. I've been following you. I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. I've been doing all these things because I want the result that they're getting and I'm not getting it. I deserve what they have. You're not treating me, God, the way that you're supposed to be treating me. I've been following you. And this is where it gets pretty selfish and where it gets really honest. He's saying, God, I wasn't following you to serve you. I was following you so you would serve me. And it's been in vain. I've been trying to accumulate these things. I've been trying to get these things. I've been staring at what they have and I want it. And all of this following you has been in vain which is a pretty bold thing to say, God, I haven't been seeking you for you. I've been seeking you for what you'll give me. God, I haven't been seeking your face. I've been seeking your hand. Pretty, pretty bold statement here. And here's the thing. This is crazy to think about, but I want to ask you the same question. Why do you follow the Lord? Because Asaph, we see in this text that God wasn't precious to him. God was just useful. He was a means to an end. And have you ever thought about wherever you're watching from, why you follow the Lord, why you obey, why you try to be good, why you try to follow him, read his word, pray, all those things. Do you do it so he'll serve you? Do you serve him so he'll serve you? Why do you follow the Lord? And I know it's probably awkward thinking about that with other people in the room, wherever you're watching from, or maybe you're watching by yourself but take some time and really take some inventory in your own heart. Why do you follow the Lord? Is Jesus, is God, is he precious to you or is he useful? Because Asaph gives us a glimpse into his heart. I've been following you, Lord, and it's been in vain. And then he says this, look at verse 14. He says, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. God, I've been following you. I've been trying to to obey, trying to be good, be a pure heart, wash my hands in innocence and the wicked are prospering and I'm stricken. All of the bad things are happening to me who's trying to be a good person and all of the good things are happening to the openly arrogant, bad people in this life. And the funny thing is, is that doesn't sound very much different than our world today, right? Some of you may have asked these same questions that Asaph is asking. God, why does it seem like all the people that cheat and manipulate and cut corners, why does it seem like they never get caught? Everything goes their way. And here I am trying to serve you faithfully, trying to honor you. And I'm not getting what I want. I'm not prospering. And here's the thing. This is exactly where Asaph is. He says it's in vain crazy thing to think about. And this is where things get even bolder. Verse 15, he says this, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So Asaph gets to the point where he says, if I was honest about what I was really feeling, I would betray your generation. I would betray your people. I would lead them astray. If I was truly honest about how I really feel, I would betray your people. Bold statement here. And then he says this in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I've been thinking over and over again, how does this make sense? God, are you just, do you see what's going on here? How in the world are you letting the wicked people um, intimidate and afflict and manipulate? How are you letting them get by? How are you letting them do this? Are you not gonna punish them? Do you not see this? And the funny thing is, is Asaph is not the only person to ask this in the scriptures. 
In fact, Job asked this very question. Job, if you know the story of Job, Job, um, the Lord allowed Satan to take everything from Job because he said, hey, the Satan came to, to God. This is crazy. You can read it in Job chapter one. Satan came to God and said, Job doesn't love you, God. Job just loves your gifts. And if you take away the gifts, he'll curse you to your face. And God gives Satan permission and he takes his health, he takes his wealth, he takes his family, he takes his property. And Job ends up asking, I think it's in Job chapter 31. He keeps, he asks the Lord, he says, God, do you not see what's going on here? Do you not see how unjust this is? And the crazy part about it is Job doesn't get the answer that he's looking for. In fact, Job gets four chapters worth of Job chapter 38 through 41 of God just showing Job his greatness and his glory and rebuking him. And he says, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? And surely you understand this. And where were you when I measured out the heavens and the earth and just goes on and on and on again for four chapters telling Job everything he's created, everything he's in control over, everything he's sovereign over, every single little thing that he controls with his power with his might. And then Job responds after this four chapters worth of God declaring his greatness, declaring that he sees everything, declaring his control. Job's response is Job 42, three. He says this, he says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And God basically just puts Job in his place which is an incredible thing to think about. And uh, J.I. Packer says this, he says, creatures are not entitled to register complaints about their creator. It's a great quote. Creatures are not entitled to register complaints about their creator. And he's exactly right. Job questions God, do you not see this? God, what are you doing? This isn't right. This isn't just. And God declares his majesty. And Job says, you know what, God, I'm sorry. I was asking things I don't even know about. I shouldn't have complained. I shouldn't have... um, questioned you. I shouldn't have questioned your authority or your sovereignty. And Packer also says this, which is an incredible quote. He says, a God whom we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of himself confronts us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God in man's image and therefore an imaginary God, not the God of the Bible at all. And what he's saying here in this amazing quote is that if you could fully comprehend God, that would be a tiny God. That's not the God of the Bible. Praise God that he is bigger than we could comprehend. Praise God that he is so much higher, so much more majestic, so much more beautiful than we could ever comprehend. Praise God that he's not small enough that we can completely understand his ways and his control and his sovereignty and the way that he moves things and controls things all for his glory and our good. Praise God that we can't fully understand him. And Job learned his lesson. And let's see if Asaph learns his lesson. We'll go to verse 17. He says this, this is where the Psalm changes. This is where the corner turns. He says this. So he's doubting, he's questioning the sovereignty and the control of God, the justice of God. God, why is this happening? And then verse 17 happens. And he says this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So what happens here? He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then everything makes sense. Everything made sense. When I experienced God, when I experienced Jesus, 
He didn't know Jesus then. Jesus was coming. He experienced God. When I experienced God, this is what he says. Here's what's so incredible about the presence of God. Psalm 16, 11 says this. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. I was doubting you. I was confused. Nothing made sense. I was questioning your justice until I truly experienced you for who you are until I was in your presence. And then my joy was full. My eyes were fixed on this earth. I wanted the treasures of this earth. I wanted uh, the comforts and the pleasures and all the different things of this earth until I got a taste of you. And my joy was full. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy and your right hand pleasures forevermore. Psalms 43, four says this, it says, then I will go to the altar of God to my exceeding joy and I will praise you with the lyre, my God. And this is what's so incredible about this moment. His eyes are fixed on the earth. His eyes are fixed on the wicked. He's envying what they have and he's questioning God. God, I want what they have. This seems like it will satisfy me. If I just had these things that they have, I'd be happy. If I had all the pleasures and the comforts of this world, I would be happy. And then he gets a taste of God and nothing else satisfies. His exceeding joy in his presence, there's fullness of joy. And he gets in the presence of the Lord and he says, God, I wanted all of these things, but now I, I just want you. You are the greatest treasure in all of life. You are the only one I want. You are the only thing that can satisfy my heart and my soul. I just want you. Nothing else will compare. And uh, we've seen this. We know that everything else falls short. When you truly experience the joy of the Lord, nothing else will satisfy. And let me just tell you, there is nothing in this earth, nothing in this life that will ever satisfy the human heart. There is no earthly thing that will ever fully and finally satisfy your heart. And we see this over and over and over again. This is my story. This is your story. We turn to things to find our hope, to find our security, to find our significance, to find our worth. And we turn to all of these earthly things and they never satisfy. Boris Becker, great example. Boris Becker was at the top of the tennis world. He had just won Wimbledon three times and a reporter comes up to him and says, hey, how do you feel? You're on top of the world. And Boris Becker starts talking to the reporter about his thoughts of suicide. Crazy to think about. Jack Higgins, incredible author, wrote up to like 60 something novels, all of them bestsellers at the top of the author game, if that's even a thing, at the top of the author world, um, so much money, so much income, so much fame, so much recognition. He was asked, what would you tell your younger self if you could talk to them now? And he said, I would tell my younger self that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. Tom Brady. Tom Brady at this point in his career had won three Super Bowls. I think now he's up to six. Um, but at this point in his career, he'd won three Super Bowls, something that no one else had ever done. Well, other people had done it, but something that literally establishes him as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time already. Not to mention six Super Bowls. He's at three. Something that so many other quarterbacks will never even dream of doing. He's this young guy on top of the world, got so many years in his career left, and he's on 60 Minutes. And he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something better out there for me? He says, there's gotta be more to this life than this. And the reporter says, well, what is it? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. 
And you can watch it on YouTube. It's this incredible interview where Tom Brady has everything he could ever want. Supermodel wife, millions of dollars, three Super Bowl rings and says, why do I feel like there's still something out there? Why do I feel empty? There's gotta be something else for me. And I wish I knew what it was. No earthly thing will ever satisfy the human heart. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. And he's exactly right. This is my story. This is your story. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. All of us turn to the fleeting pleasures of this world to draw our hope from, to draw our significance from. For some of you, it may be a bottle. For some of you, it may be the golf course. For some of you, it may be success at work. But we all, it may be your social media reputation. It may be um, your fashion sense and the way you look and the pictures that you post. All of us, every single one of us, turn to the fleeting pleasures of this world to try to, try to satisfy our hearts. And Spurgeon says this, he says, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. And this is exactly what Asaph is experiencing. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. And luckily, and here's the thing, this is the dangerous part. Asaph never got those things he envied. And it's usually... This isn't true for all of us, but most of the time you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And Asaph was envying, he wanted these treasures, he thought they would satisfy. And luckily in his defense and his benefit, the Lord did not give him what he wanted. But here's the dangerous part. Some of you, the Lord has given you exactly what you wanted in his grace and his common grace to us. He's allowed you to get everything you've wanted and you're realizing that, hey, the more I try to get, the more it doesn't satisfy. And here's what's so dangerous about this. We eventually become slaves to those things because here's what they do. They promise a little bit of pleasure in the moment, but then the pleasure wears off, it goes away. So we have to keep returning to these things over and over again. You never post enough to feel affirmed, to feel adequate, to feel satisfied, to feel completely loved or whole or um, valuable, right? You've always gotta make another post. Eventually you post and here comes the dopamine, here comes the reaction, here comes everybody liking it, re-commenting uh, on it, sharing it, all these different things. You're so beautiful, you're so awesome. And then it fades away. You start to look around and what everybody else has. And here's the thing about envy. Envying, wanting other people's lives takes the joy out of the life that you actually have. And we saw this with Asaph. Wanting someone else's life took the joy out of what he had. And luckily the Lord did not give him what he wanted. The Lord gave him something better. And he experienced the presence of the Lord. And he says, I don't want anything else. I don't want another thing. I don't want anything else in this life, God. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're my exceeding joy. Nothing else satisfies. And this is what happens. He then looks on the wicked with compassion. And this is exactly how we should respond. When we find the greatest treasure in this life and the next, we begin to look at others with compassion. And he says this in verse 18, he says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. I thought I was in the slippery place. I thought I was about to slip, but no, you set them in slippery places because they're deceived. 
They're drawing from the pleasures of this world, thinking that they're secure, thinking that everything's going great for them. And they are following these pleasures, as Proverbs says, like an ox going to the slaughter. They don't even see it. They're so deceived. They keep drawing from the different pleasures of this world. They keep drawing from the bottle, right? Drawing from the attention from others, drawing from the affirmation, and it never satisfies them. And on and on and on they go. They try to get more and more, and they don't see that they are on their way to their ruin. When I see you, it all makes sense. You're the only thing in this life. This life is fragile. This life is frail. Every single thing that we pursue on this earth will go away eventually. Let me just tell you, every single earthly treasure will end eventually. It will go away. This is why the Bible is constantly trying to get our eyes off of this earth and onto the next one, off of this life and onto the next one. This is why Jesus came to this earth and taught, don't store up treasures here on earth. Don't store them up. Store up treasures in heaven. The moth, the rust, they can destroy here. You have a greater treasure in heaven. Pursue the treasures in heaven. Pursue eternal things. Pursue loving God and loving others. Extending the kingdom. Don't store up treasures here on earth. Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above. This is exactly why Jesus came to teach this because he knew this. He is the only thing that could ever satisfy the human heart. The only thing. And here's the crazy part about it. This is the gospel, that Jesus is the giver of all things, but he's also the gift. The gospel is that Jesus is the giver and he's the gift. He came to give himself. And when you truly see him, when you experience his presence, everything else makes sense. And he says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, he says, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly, by terrors. Verse 20, this is incredible. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Like a dream when one awakes. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, when all this is over, when life is over, when the end comes, when Jesus Christ returns, this earth, this life is going to feel like and go away as quickly as you wake up from a dream. Everything in this life, the pleasures of this world, all of those are gonna fade away just as quick as your dream goes away when you wake up. And here's the thing about this earth. This is why it's so deceiving. All of these pleasures, all of the things of this earth promise pleasure now. They promise happiness now. They give you a little taste and they say, this is reality. This is reality. Pursue these things, live for these things, try to attain these things. And here's the thing. We can be so deceived and chase after those things that in a moment, like a dream when we wake up, as quickly as our dream goes away and we can barely remember it, this is what it's going to be like when the end comes. And this is going to be their destruction. He says, when you despise them as phantoms, incredible thing to think about. This is going to be their destruction. And then here's the thing, Asaph, he sees them, he sees what's happening to them and he repents. He sees what he'd done to the Lord. He looks at his attitude And he says this in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant like a beast towards you. And here's the thing. When you see God for who he really is, you see you for who you really are. And ASAP, what comes natural to him, when you truly experience the God of the universe and the gospel 
When you truly experience him and all of his majesty, all of his glory, it just comes natural for you to say, you know what? I am not you. I am, I have wronged you. I have used you. And we see Asaph start to confess. And he says, I was, I was brutish. I was ignorant towards you. I was arrogant. I was bitter towards you. I was using you to get what I thought I wanted. And he just starts to open up and confess about God. And here's the response. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You guide my right hand. Do you see the gospel in this? It's an incredibly transformational thought to confess all of the wicked parts about you and for God to respond with, I'm still here. I still love you. This is Asaph's story and this is our story. If you've ever come to know Jesus Christ, this is your story. I forsook you. I wasn't paying attention to you. I was trying to find my pleasure in all these other things. I sinned against you. I was using you. I didn't care about you. I was pursuing all these different things. I completely disregarded you, yet you still loved me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see the gospel in this moment? I was using you, I was bitter towards you, I was ignorant towards you, I envied what they had. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Now I want you to see this. This is an incredible, this is a picture of the Christian life right here. This is an incredible picture. I wanna look at these two verses side by side because this is what happens when you come to truly know God and you experience him and you put your faith and your hope and your trust in him, here's the thing. Look at the progression here. I'm with you, you hold me, you guide me, and you receive me, right? I'm grasped, I'm guided, I'm glorified. This is the Christian life, that when you put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, you're sealed by the spirit, he's with you, he guides you with his word, and he'll receive you into glory when all this is over. This is the Christian life. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me, you hold my right hand, you never let me go, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, when all of this is over, you receive me into glory. And this reality that you'll never leave me, you'll never forsake me, I've got you in your presence, there's fullness of joy, I don't want anything else, nothing in this earth will ever satisfy me, I'm done chasing the pleasures, everything that I want is in you. The satisfaction that I'm looking for is in you, the significance that I'm looking for is in you. The worth and the value that I'm looking for is never gonna be found in this world, it's only found in the fact that I'm a sinner and you love me and you died for me. When I see that and I receive you and I'm with you and you hold me and you guide me and one day, you receive me when all of this is over, when this dream, when we wake up and eternity is before us and you receive me into glory, this causes Asaph to burst out into this incredible passage. And if you are into memorizing scripture, I highly encourage you to memorize these next two verses. He says this in verse 25 and 26. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And this is the only response. 
When you truly see the treasure that Jesus Christ is, when you truly see the treasure in the Old Testament that Asaph saw, that the God of the universe is, your only response is, I don't want anything else in heaven but you. I don't want anything else on earth but you. My flesh and my heart, they, it's not even may fail. They're going to fail. That word fail in the Hebrew means die. My flesh and my heart, they're going to fail. All the pleasures of this earth will fail. But God, you're the strength of my heart. You're my portion. That word portion means inheritance. It means treasure. You're my treasure forever. Do you see what happens here? And this is our story. And I just want to challenge you. If maybe today you found your treasure in other things and you may be saying, oh, how do I know what my treasure is? Well, where do you find your pleasure? That's usually where your treasure is, right? Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. How do you know where your heart is? Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let me ask you, what you've been talking about all the time, what you find yourself talking about, what you find yourself finding pleasure in, that's probably a good indicator of what your treasure is. And if you are not getting your joy and your pleasure from the God of the universe, if he's not satisfying your soul, if your peace is coming from something other than the God of the universe, if your joy, if your significance, if your worth, if you're drawing those things from anything in this earth, it's not gonna last. And when you truly see the God of the universe for who he really is, when we truly see Jesus Christ for who he is, the only response is whom have I in heaven but you? God, nothing on this earth will satisfy. Take the world and give me Jesus. I only want you in heaven. I only want you here on earth. This is Paul's response. This is Paul's conversion where he was an enemy of God. He was opposing the movement of God. He was opposing Jesus Christ until he met him. And Paul writes in Philippians 1, he says, to live is Christ. If I'm here on earth, all I want is Christ. If I die, more Christ. Here's the thing about God's love. It's the only thing that will never fail you. It's the only thing that will never leave you. And it's the only love that gets better when you die. It's the only thing that will ever satisfy the human heart. And Paul says, to live is Christ. If I'm here, Christ. If I die, more Christ. Doesn't matter where you put me. It doesn't matter what life throws at me. Paul had probably one of the worst human experiences ever for the name of Christ. He was beaten. He was thrown in prison over and over and over again. But here's the thing. He knew that, hey, if I'm on this earth, all I want is Christ. He will satisfy my soul in the midst of all this. He'll be my joy in the midst of all the suffering. And when I die, I get more of him. Gain. So take the world, give, throw whatever you want at me, come what may, I want Jesus. Incredible thing, Who ha, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus actually taught this way about the kingdom. <clears throat> my favorite parable in all the Bible is a one verse parable. It's Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says this, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, here's that word again, like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. So many of us think that coming to know Jesus is raising a hand. It's reciting a prayer. All, none of those things are bad in themselves, but Jesus actually taught, this is what coming to know him looks like. This is what happens when you come to know him. It's like a man who finds a treasure in a field and don't miss the next detail in his joy. He sells all that he has and buys that field. 
He found the greater treasure. He didn't want anything else. He was willing to forsake all the other treasures because he found the greatest treasure in all of life. And he was willing to give everything else. Does that mean you have to sell everything to follow Jesus? No, but it does mean you have to be willing to. It means that you truly see God as your source of joy, as the ultimate treasure in this earth for all of eternity. And you say, you know what? I don't care what happens. All I want is him. That's only a response that happens when you truly see the gospel for what it is. John Piper says this, he says, seeing Christ as our treasure makes all other possessions joyfully dispensable. When you get a taste of the goodness of God, when you get a taste of the mercy and the grace of Jesus, it makes everything else in this life joyfully dispensable. And I want to see what, I want you to see what happens with Asaph. I want you to see what happens. Um, he ends the Psalm with these two verses. He says this in verse 27, he says, behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And then he says this verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So verse 27, he says, God, you are just, you are good. I've seen their end, right? Those who are far from you shall perish. Now go back to verse 27 if we can. Notice what he says. He doesn't say that the wicked will perish. He says, those that are far from you will perish. And here's the thing about this. Every single sin, in all of eternity, past, present, and future will be paid for one day. And Asaph sees this. When he sees the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, he says, oh no, you are just, you are good. And here's the thing, High Point Church, every single sin in this life, past, present, and future will be paid for. And that makes God look glorious because he doesn't let sin go unpaid for. He's just, he's good, he's merciful and every sin's gonna be paid for. And it's either gonna be paid for with the life of the unbeliever, of the wicked, of those far from God, or it's gonna be paid for by his son on the cross. But every single sin in this life will be paid for. And then he ends with verse 28, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And here's what I want you to see. This is the transformation. This is what happens when you truly experience the treasure of the God of the universe. You, you truly experience the treasure of Jesus Christ. Look at the transformation. I just want to read you the transformation that happens in Asaph's life. He goes from at the beginning of the Psalm of being, he says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped to at the end, he says, but as for me, it's good to be near God. He goes from, it troubled me to try to understand this to I experienced you and then I understood. He goes from poor me at the beginning to you're my greatest treasure in all of life. He goes from, I didn't get the reward I was hoping for to I got the greatest reward of all. Surely this is in vain. So this is not in vain. I'll live for you. I'll die for you. All I want is you. Nothing else satisfies. Nothing else compares. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing else on this earth that I desire besides you. I'm failing. This world is failing. All of this is fleeting. It's all going away. It's all coming to an end. But you're the strength of my heart. You're my portion forever. He goes from I deserve what they have. So I don't want what they have. I have something so much greater and then he goes from the best thing that I can do in verse 15 is keep my mouth shut. 
to the last verse that I may tell of all your works. Why? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You'll talk about what you treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is why Jesus wants you to make him your greatest treasure. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is after the same thing he's always been after. He's, been, he's after your heart. And when you truly get a taste of him and realize that he is all satisfying, that nothing else will compare, everything else in this world doesn't compare, it's all fleeting, <clears throat> you'll make him your treasure. And your heart will be there also. And I want to end with this story. Um, <clears throat> Horatio Spafford. He was a Chicago native. He and his wife, Anna, we've actually got a picture of him. Chicago native. He had a wife named Anna. He had a son and four daughters. And in 1871, Horatio Spafford lost his son to scarlet, scarlet fever. And then a few months after that, um, he lost almost all of his investment property in the Great Chicago Fire and managed to get by for a few years until 1873 happened. And in 1873, Horatio Spafford was planning to go with his family to Europe and last minute business decision had to stay back. So he sends his wife and his four daughters on a ship to Europe and their ship ends up colliding with another ship and sinks instantly. And his wife was the only one to survive. His four daughters die. His wife was the only one to survive. And he gets a telegram from his wife that says two words, like gives me chills to think about. Gets a telegram from his wife and it says survived alone, saved alone. And Horatio, having lost his son, having lost all his property, having lost his four daughters, gets on a ship to go meet his wife, to go find his wife in Europe and gets to the point at sea where he lost his four daughters, where their ship collided with another ship. And he gets out something to write with and he writes down these words. And I want to read them to you. He says this, he says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And then he says this. He says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should, should come, let this blessed assurance, not doubt, not maybe, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and had shed his own blood for my soul. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And let me just tell you, this is what the watching world needs to see. This is exactly what they need to see. And here's the thing, a watching world doesn't need to see us as believers act like life is amazing and everything's going great circumstantially. And we have all these treasures here on earth. And here's, if you've ever thought about why don't my friends and neighbors come and ask me about the hope that I have? Why don't they come and ask me about the hope that I have? Could it be that our lives look like we hope in the same things that they do? Could it be that when they look at our lives, it looks like our hope and our security and our satisfaction and our joy comes from the, the material things on this earth? Maybe that's the reason why people don't come and say, hey, why do you have joy? Here's the thing. The watching world doesn't need us to teach them how to be happy when everything's going their way. They already know how to do that. 
We don't need to teach the world how to be happy when all the circumstances of life are great. What the watching world needs to see because they know this world is broken. They know life is painful. They know that, yeah, they're posting and their Instagram looks great, but underneath it all, they're depressed. They know that the bottle isn't working. They know that the pills aren't working. They know that the porn isn't working. They know that the affair isn't working. They know that people around them are dying, that they're losing loved ones, that there's so much pain in this life. We don't need to act like circumstantially, everything is great in this life. This earth is broken, it's fallen. It only makes us look forward to the glory that's to come, but the watching world doesn't need to see us as Christians act like everything's great circumstantially. And here's why we're joyful because our circumstances are great. No, they don't need to see that. They need to see this. They need to see a life like Horatio. They need to see that even in your darkest times that you say his grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. That even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That I'm sorrowful. Yes, this world is hard. Yes, it's painful. But I'm always rejoicing underneath the sorrow of this life, underneath the pains of this earth, that I have a joy that's greater. I have peace in the middle of these storms. I have joy even though I'm so sorrowful. They need to see something. They need to see joy that's greater than the circumstances of this life. This is what a watching world needs to see. And this is the treasure that we have in Christ. And here's the thing. This is the gospel of this story that just like Asaph, you and I, we were ignorant. We were like beasts towards God, but God sent his son and he didn't question God. He wasn't a beast towards him. He wasn't ignorant towards him. He didn't envy. He didn't question. He followed him completely. He followed him fully. He followed him faithfully. And he willingly took the cross. And if there was anyone in human history that did not deserve for God to take his hand away, it was Jesus Christ. Why? But God took his hold off of him. God took his hand away. Why? So he could hold yours. Because on the cross, Jesus was getting what you and I deserve. He was getting exactly what you and I deserve. And God withdrew his hand so that he could give us his. Jesus cried out. And God ignored his cry. Why? So he could answer yours. This world is not looking for better circumstances. They're not looking for earthly treasures. They know those are fleeting. We're so good at acting like, especially on social media. And as we go through life, we're so good at making everything look like it's put together. That's not what the world is looking for. They're looking for joy in the midst of the painful circumstances in this life. And we have it. And it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, while we were ignorant towards God, he died for us. Jesus is the giver, but he's also the ultimate gift. And God forgive us for all those times that we have exchanged you for other lesser gifts. God removed any barrier for us to experience himself. And the barrier was sin. He removed it, put it on Jesus on the cross. And the thing that I love about <clears throat> this series, the thing I love about the Psalms, if you've ever thought about it, the book of Psalms is 150 books, letters, chapters of people crying out to God. And God answers every single one of them. And just like God answers every single Psalm, God has answered every single cry from past to present to future in this life. God will answer. He already has answered the cry of every human heart. And he did it through his son. 
Jesus is God's definitive answer to the cries of his people. God answered every cry, every brokenness, every pain on this earth. He has given us something better. He's given us something greater. He's given us a greater treasure and it's Jesus. It's his son. Jesus is God's definitive answer to the cries of his people. Now let's go and live and show him as the treasure that he really is. So let me end by asking you, what is your treasure? And I know it could be awkward to think about it. What have you put your hope in? What are you drawing your satisfaction and your joy from? What is it? Maybe you need to take some time internally, do some inventory and think about it. Where are you drawing your pleasure from? Is it from something fleeting on this earth or is it from the joy of the presence and the mercy and the compassion of the God of the universe through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that where you get your significance from? Is that where you get your worth from? Is that where you get your identity from? Is that where you get your value from? Or is it from something else in this life? And maybe today is your day. As you're watching this, maybe you're like, wow, I don't, you don't know me, but Parker, it feels like you've been speaking right at me. You've read my mail. Like, you know that I've been turning to so many other things to try to make me happy. Maybe today's the day that you lay those things down, that you lay the habit down, that you lay the pills down, that you lay the golf down, that you lay whatever it is. And not that you quit forever, but you stop trying to draw your joy and your worth and your significance from it. And you say, you know what? There's a God in heaven who loves me. Even though I've ignored him, I've been a beast towards him. He sent his son for me to die for me. He forgives me. I'm gonna draw my worth and my satisfaction from him because of what he sees in me, what he's chosen me. He's defined me. I'm gonna find my worth from him. Maybe today's that you do that. Maybe today's the day that you do that. Could today be the day that you realize that no other treasure will satisfy and only he will. And we wanna give you an opportunity to do that. If today's the day that you wanna put your faith in Jesus, I wanna give you a chance to pray. And I'm going to pray. And once, like I said earlier, this prayer doesn't save you. It's not about the words. It's about the heart. It's about, do you see Jesus as the greatest thing in all of life? And this prayer will reflect that if you really mean it in your heart, but bow your heads. I would love to lead you in a chance to pray. And if you pray this prayer, you can text high point to 97000 to 97,000. You can text high point to 97,000. And uh, if you text this, we would love to follow up with you. We'd love to respond with you, but I want to give you a chance to pray this prayer because some of you, you realize today, Hey, this is my moment. I've tried to find joy and I'm empty. I've tried to find my satisfaction from everything else in this life and it hasn't worked. And today's my day. I want to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ who paid for my sins. Let me lead you in a prayer. And then we'll close. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, I pray for those that are watching right now. God, I pray for those that have realized that in the name of joy, in the pursuit of joy, God, they've come up empty because they've chased the different things in this world that they thought would satisfy them. God, they've hurt people along the way. They've hurt themselves along the way. God, it's taken them so much further than they want to go. It's kept them longer than they wanted to stay. And it's cost them so much more than they wanted to pay. And God, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it meets us in our tracks, in our rebellion. God, you show up and you meet us with your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. You took our debt, paid for it on the cross. So God, if that's you today, you can just pray and say, dear God, I'm a sinner. I confess my sin before you. God, I've missed your mark. God, I've ignored you. But today I see you 
for what you are really worth. I see you for who you really are. I put my faith and my hope and my trust in you. And God, I want to follow you. I want you. Take the world, give me Jesus. Then you can just ask him to forgive you of your sins. Repent of your sins. If there's specific sins you want to confess, you can confess those. Say, God, I want you. I put my faith and my hope and my trust in you. Then you can just thank him for saving you. And uh, let me pray to close this. Dear God, we love you. Thank you for those that prayed this prayer. God, more than that, thank you for those that today was the first day that they saw you for the worth and the treasure that you are. And God, for the rest of us that know you and know your goodness, but we're so prone to wander. We're so prone to find our joy in other things. God, thank you for the reminder today in your word, by your spirit, um, that you are all we need, that everything we have is in you. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on this earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our hearts and our circumstances will fail, but God, you're the strength of our heart and our portion forever. God, we're so grateful. It's all in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.